morning, church. Am I on? Can you hear me? Good. Well, trust you all had a very blessed week this week. Uh, and it's always a privilege and an honor and a joy to be worshiping you with you all this morning. And of course, bringing you the word of God today. So we are continuing on our sermon series in the book of Acts, the gospel emotions. And this morning we find ourselves beginning a new chapter and we are in chapter 21. But it is very much a continuation of last week's message by Pastor Gareth. And if you missed last week's message, don't worry. I'm going to briefly recap what Pastor Gareth taught us and bring you up to speed. Because as I said, for last week's message or this week's message is very much a continuation of what we'll be studying today. So if you can recall, Pastor Gareth taught us last week that it is more blessed to give than to receive. For God gave his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as children of God, we are to be givers as well. Because when we give, we act as God does. And towards the end of chapter 20, we see Luke records Paul's feelings towards money and his love for those and the care for those who are in the body of Christ. Paul was very much concerned that the false teachers in Ephesus were encouraging greed and covetousness behavior. And he warned the elders in Ephesus against this. And his concern was really for the needs of his companions and for those who could not really provide for themselves. Paul very much followed the example of Jesus in giving. Like Jesus, Paul demonstrated his love and his concern for the brethren. He sacrificed much for those in Ephesus. He loved them and he served them for three years. He sacrificed and he gave of himself and of his possessions. But we also witnessed how difficult it was for Paul to leave the elders behind. For we see that there was much weeping and there was much embracing. For the scriptures tell us that what grieved them the most was that it was probably the last time that they were to see Paul ever again. But we know that God has designed us for friendship. He's designed us for companionship. He has created us to be friends and he has created us to have friends. And this is for our own good. You just have to look in the Bible and you see the examples of Jonathan and of David or, or of Ruth and Naomi. Friendships are important to us and they were important to Paul as well. As Pastor Gareth mentioned to us last week, if you have lived here in the UAE for a while, you would probably have experienced much of this yourselves. We have had many, many, many sad farewells here where there's been much weeping and embracing and knowing that it may be the last time that we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that we look forward to one day seeing them in the kingdom of God again. So like the apostles, we spend time praying with them. We spend time praying with our brothers and sisters as they leave us behind, and that they continue earnestly in their walk with the Lord, and that the Holy Spirit guides them in their new adventures. But today, as we explore the narrative here uh, from Luke, I want you to firstly see how painful it was for Paul to leave his brethren behind, but also despite the opposition that Paul faced from his companions, 
he was determined to do the will of the Lord. So the title of my message is The Lord's Will Be Done. So let's read the account for us today. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. So if you would like to stand, please, so that we can show uh, reverence towards God's word. So let's stand, please. <clears throat> so Acts chapter 21, beginning at the first verse. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from them to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, we see, and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for this blessed day that you have given us. All glory and honor belong to you, Father. May we praise you and may we honor you, Lord. And we thank you for the scripture that we have before us today, Lord. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to lighten your word today, Lord. May we dig deep into your word, Lord, and may it penetrate our hearts, Lord, so that we can see the example that Paul sets us today, Father. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So tell me, have you ever faced an incredibly difficult decision? <laughs> I know I have, certainly. Which college or university to attend? Which job offer to accept? You know, which spouse do I choose to spend the rest of my life with? Or which city do I live in? 
Do I move to Abu Dhabi or do I stay in my own home country where everything is very familiar to me and I'm surrounded by family and friends? So I'm sure all of us can relate here. So how do we discern the will of the Lord for our lives? Do we remain true to our convictions or do we compromise? So let's just hold on to that thought for a moment and let's just start from the beginning. And let's observe how Paul dealt with this particular situation because at the end of the day, he had a choice as well. So the first thing we encounter in this narrative, we see the conjunction word and. And it is very much a continuation of last week's message because if we read in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 to 38, which pastor left off last week, uh, it says this, or Luke wrote this, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So we see my first point here, the sad farewell, which is in verses 1 to verses 3. And notice what verse 1 says. It says, and when we parted from them and set sail. So the ESV uses the word parted here, which indicates that they went their separate ways. They separated from one another. But I much prefer the NIV version, which says, we had torn ourselves away from them. And this, I really feel, reiterates the difficulty that Paul had in leaving the Ephesian elders behind. They literally had to rip themselves apart from each other. And you can feel the pain here. You can feel the sorrow in saying goodbye. And I know it could not have been easy. And I'm sure you may have experienced this as well. Picture yourself standing at the airport and saying goodbye to loved ones, to your parents, to your children, and to your spouse. It hurts, doesn't it? It's really painful. You probably have plans to see them again sometime soon, but you can imagine the pain that they must have experienced knowing that they were never going to see each other again. But also notice the pronouns that Luke uses in this narrative. He says we, he says us, he says our. He writes, and when we parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos. And he repeats it several times in this narrative. So this really must indicate that Luke was part of this company. He joined Paul as a traveling companion to Jerusalem. Thus, Luke would have been an eyewitness of the events that unfolded. He would have had first-hand experience of this journey. So this is the reason why he paints such a vivid picture in this narrative about Paul's journey. So Luke continues, and he provides a port-by-port -port travel guide of Paul's trip. Because he says, after leaving Miletus, the ship sailed south to the island of Kos, where it anchored there for the night. And the next day, the ship sailed to the island of Rhodes, which is an island southeast of Kos, and its harbor was home to the great statue as the known as the Colossus of Rhodes, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And from, them, from there, the party docked at the coastal city of Patara. 
Now, Batara was also a commercial city, and it possessed a fine harbor. It was a popular port of call for the large vessels that were plying such eastern Mediterranean areas, for example, Macedonia, Achaia, Asia, Syria, Egypt, and Judea. And at Patara, we see that Paul's party changed ships, and then they boarded a large merchant vessel and would travel nonstop to Tyre, which was about 400 miles, approximately over 600 kilometers. So Luke was very descriptive in his details here. He correctly described the stages of a coast-hugging ship's journey, as well as the sea travel in general during those times, right? Each of the ports they stopped at represented one day's travel, for they didn't travel at night. Also, individuals that journeyed by sea would have to find available ships and would have to accept delays because of the loading and unloading of cargo. And in this case, we see that Paul's ship reached Tyre to unload its cargo, which apparently took several days. And Paul and his companions disembarked the ship, and they located some disciples in the city with whom they stayed a week with, which is in verses 4. Now, the church in Tyre had probably been established by the Christian Hellenistic, uh, who had been forced to flee Jerusalem when Stephen was martyred. And Paul and his companions from Antioch had earlier met with the Christians in Phoenicia and presumably in Tyre as well uh, uh, on their way to the Jerusalem Council, which we read in Acts chapter 15. But in verse 4, we notice that Paul sought out other disciples and he stayed in Tyre for about seven days. And in the narrative, Luke tells us that the disciples urged Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. So let's look at my second point here, the warnings that Paul received, which is verses 4 to verses 12. Now this references the warnings that the Spirit picked up the thought that in every city the Holy Spirit had been warning Paul of the hardships that had been awaiting him in Jerusalem. Because if we look in Acts chapter 20, verses 23, Luke writes this, he says, The Holy Spirit testifies to me, to me being Paul, in every city, imprisonment and inflictions await me. So that's what Luke writes. So we need to ask ourselves the question, was Paul disregarding the voice of the Spirit in going to Jerusalem? Was he sinning or was he being disobedient towards the Holy Spirit? And we know that opinion is very much divided between commentators and between the biblical scholars. But I would argue that perhaps we are thinking about it in the wrong way or we're asking the wrong questions. It would be very natural for the believers to show concern for Paul's safety, right? And they would be dissuading him to go to Jerusalem. As we can see, this is not a command from the Holy Spirit for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Rather, the Spirit revealed to the believers at Tyre that Paul would face suffering in Jerusalem. As a result, Paul would be more prepared for it. It would not have shocked him or taken him by surprise. Paul appeared to have a choice here in the matter. He could go to Jerusalem or he could not. And as we know from the scriptures, Paul chose to go to Jerusalem. He was willing to suffer 
the consequences of his actions, and which we know he did it. So after a week in Tyre, the ship was ready to set sail, and Paul prepared to continue on his journey to Jerusalem. So we see that the entire church, men, women, and children, accompanied Paul from the city to the coastal port area. And look at the scene that uh, Luke paints here. It is very similar to the scene of his departure when he left Ephesus. For the group knelt down together on the beach, they said a final prayer, and then they said goodbyes. Again, the goodbyes must have been emotional as Paul's party boarded the ship whilst the others went home. So now we see that the ship made its way south to Ptolemy, which is about 25 miles or 40 kilometers south of Tyre, where it stopped overnight. Now, Ptolemy was also called Acre in the, law, in the Old Testament, which we see in Judges chapter 1. Uh, and it was also a very important Phoenician port. It was renamed Acre in the Crusader days, and it today Haifa is the important port in the area. So the ship continued south, and the next day Paul's party reached Caesarea, about 35 miles south of Ptolemy. Now Herod the Great built some magnificent projects here. He built an amphitheater and an aqueduct, and it was really a superb port. There was a garrison of soldiers that protected the city harbor and the water facilities. Now the military guard, which included the Italian regiment of which Cornelius was a centurion. So remember Cornelius. In chapter 10, Caesarea was the setting where Cornelius was converted. Caesarea also served as the capital of the Roman province of Judea. It was said to have a population primary, primarily made up of Gentiles, but also had a large minority of Jews as well. So the two groups battled each other on a regular basis. But here in um, Caesarea, we see or we read that Paul and his companions stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. And they stayed there for a number of days in uh, verses 8. But notice that Luke refers to him as the evangelist. And no one else in scripture is referred to as an evangelist, except when Paul tells Timothy or commands Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. So we know that the the word evangelist stems from the Greek word euangelion, which originally meant a reward given to the messenger of good news. And in chapter 8, we read, Philip was responsible for baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and this is his only reappearance in the book. It is interesting that Paul and Philip were once enemies, but now they are working together as fellow preachers to spread the gospel of grace. So, Phil so Philip was apparently living now in Caesarea, possibly throughout the two decades, and he probably continued to evangelize in this area. And I'm sure he would have been an elder in the church had it existed in the Caesarea area. By now, we read that he had four unmarried daughters that prophesied, which is in verses 9. The fact that Luke describes them as unmarried may indicate that they were called by God for some specific purpose or for some special ministry. And Luke does not reveal what uh, the nature of their prophecy was, 
Was it a once-off or was it an ongoing ministry? But since they were not allowed to be teachers or preachers, they most likely ministered to individuals. And according to church tradition, Philip and his daughters later moved to Hierapolis in the province of Asia. And the daughters supposedly provided information to the church in the early days. And also notice that Luke identifies Philip as one of the seven. This refers back to his appointment along with the other six others, which included Stephen. And they were to take care of the uh, Hellenistic Jewish widows in Jerusalem church. Now the title of the seven was complementary to the twelve. And perhaps they had a special ministry to the Hellenistic Christian Jews at the time. So as we continue in the narrative, while Paul was at the home of Philip, a prophet Agabus came down from Judea. Now Caesarea was in the province of Judea, but the city was not considered part of the Jewish land because, as I said, it had a majority of a Gentile population. Now Agabus apparently lived in Jerusalem, and earlier he was said to be from that city. So Agabus took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said this to Paul. He said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles in verse 11. And if we read further on, the prophecy was fulfilled in principle, but it did not happen in detail as he suggested it was, because we know that a mob of Jews grabbed Paul and the Roman garrison commander and ordered him to be bound with chains, which we'll read further on in chapter 21, verses 33. So technically speaking, uh, the Jews' leaders did not bind the owner of the belt and they did not hand him over. Rather, the Romans rescued Paul from the Jewish mob. However, we see that Paul ends up in prison uh, by the Gentiles. But it is also interesting to note the words that Luke uses, and it is very similar in nature to the fate of Jesus and Paul in their final trip to Jerusalem. Because Luke Johnson, in his commentary, writes this, The language of the oracle once more conforms Paul to the image of the prophet Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem. Agabus declares that Paul too will be handed over and into the power of the Gentiles, which makes his prophecy remarkably close to the passions of Jesus. And like Jesus, Paul declares his willingness to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. We also know that many of the Old Testament prophets had begun their prophecies or their oracles with, thus says the Lord, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Nahum, and so on. But yeah, in Luke, we see that the Holy Spirit substitutes for the Lord. And Agabus' prophecy also reminds us of the Old Testament oracles that the message was conveyed through action as well as word. Because we saw, we remember Isaiah walked about naked and barefoot to demonstrate how the Assyrians would humiliate the Egyptians and take them captive, which we read in Isaiah chapter 20. As well as Jeremiah shattered a, a clay jar to show how God would cause Jerusalem to be destroyed. And this is Jeremiah chapter 19. Ezekiel also built a model to portray the Babylonian siege to Jerusalem. But we should also note that Agabus's prophecy contained 
no command that Paul should break his journey and not go to Jerusalem. So now notice my third point, the response of Paul, which we see in verses 13 and 14. Despite all the opposition and the warning from his traveling companions, as well as the disciples from Caesarea, Paul responds, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So we witness the utter devotion of Paul to Jesus. He did not break his journey to Jerusalem. He did not turn around and run away from his objective. He remained resolute. He stood firm against his closest companions and against his allies. Paul was prepared to suffer. He was prepared to die for the sake of the gospel of Christ. He was not worried about his life or the suffering that awaited him. He was ready to die for the cause of Christ. He was ready to give up his freedom and go to prison for the sake of Christ. He was prepared to suffer all for Christ. For he said to, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He wanted to bring glory to God through his obedience to the word. Paul knew how much his Savior had given him, and he was willing to give as much, because the name of Jesus is greater than any other name. The name of Jesus was greater than his desires, was greater than his freedom, was even greater than his life. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, it sounds senseless or even preposterous for Paul to even do such a thing. You might argue that he could have planted more churches. He could have made more disciples. He could have done more, right? But we know that Paul eventually got to stand before Caesar and he got to proclaim the gospel of Christ. He was able to witness to those who, abound, who bound him in chains. And he was able to write letters which that continue to bless the church today. Because in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So essentially, Paul's sacrifice became his witness. His devotion impacted those who had never heard the gospel of Christ before, who had never heard the word of God before. He sacrificed and his devotion strengthened others. So what can we learn from Paul's response here? I hope people can see the value in this, especially for those who claim to be followers of Christ, of Jesus. Jesus is better than anything that you will ever, ever experience. He is better than any situation you may find yourself in. He is better 
than any desires that you may have or any experiences you may experience. He is better than any plan that you may have for your life. Jesus is simply better. And if we truly love Jesus, if we are devoted to him, and we truly desire to follow Jesus, we must be willing to do the same. We must be willing to lay down our life for him. Now, not all of us, admittedly, are going to be called to go to prison for him. Not all of us are going to be asked to die for him. However, we are all asked to obey his commands and to follow him, to pick up our cross daily and to follow him, to lay our desires before him. This may mean maybe giving something up, maybe sacrificing something. Maybe it is a relationship that you are in. Maybe you need to quit your job. Maybe he's asking you to go to the mission field or to give more generously to the church. It won't be easy, of course, but then, of course, it won't be a sacrifice, would it? But finally, notice the response of Paul's companions here. They eventually give up, and they say, the Lord's will be done. I think they finally realized that God knew best. They eventually put their trust in Paul, in God. The group then made preparations for the final leg of the trip to Jerusalem. Now, some of the disciples of Caesarea decided to go with Paul and the delegation. So let's just tie this off and conclude with some application this morning. I said in the beginning, how do you discern what the Lord's will is for your life? All believers want to know what, or what God's will is, especially in the very important decisions that we make. But notice that I say the word believers, right? The process of finding God's will begins when you trust Christ as your Savior, being willing to do whatever He calls you to do. And if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you are clearly out of the will of God because He wants you firstly to be saved. So, of course, it's not easy to figure out, right? Like everything else, there are conflicting views. But this morning, I want to show you from the passage that Luke gives us the example of Paul. He remains resolute. He remains true to his convictions, despite the opposition that he faced to compromise. And I would like you to refer to an article that Pastor Stephen Coles wrote. He is a pastor from U.S. in California. He provides principles from this passage, and I encourage you to read it. And if you want to know more about it, please come and see me. He says this in his article. But then how do we know God's will? The bad news, or the good news, depending on how you look at it, is that there is no simple formula in the Bible for how to know God's will in situations that are within his moral will. If there were, we would probably apply the formula without seeking God himself. The good news side is that God primarily guides us through our relationship with him as we grow to understand his word and learn to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. But since even the best of us, including Paul, are imperfect sinners, it is an imperfect and often uncertain process at best. But even when we do miss God's will due to our lack of understanding or due to our sin, 
He is sovereign and he is gracious to overcome our mistakes. So in our text, Paul gives us a few principles that Pastor Carl writes about. Firstly, we see that we need to be committed to obeying God's word. He is the Lord. He is true. He loves you and he has wonderful plans for you. But without obeying his word, you will never discern the will for your life. Essentially, what Pastor Cole says, you need to write God a blank check with your life. Because Paul said in verse 13, and I repeat, For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And as I said, granted, you may not be called to suffer like Paul did, but we are to submit to the Lord. We are to obey His word, and we are to experience the blessings that He has in store for us. So any uh, information from the Spirit where you think that you are disobeying God's law is clearly not from the Spirit Himself. Secondly, by examining Paul's life, we can see that he walked closely with the Lord. You need to know God intimately through His Word. Since his conversion, Paul's aim was to know Christ. Paul knew God's Word well. He was led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. So if we want to know God's will, we need to walk with Him daily. Be dedicated to studying His Word. We need to spend time with Him daily in prayer, much like Paul did. Because Pastor Carl writes, there are no shortcuts or easy formulas to knowing the Lord. It's a process that requires diligently seeking Him in His Word and in prayer over time. Thirdly, we need to seek biblical wisdom. For God's wisdom is better than any human logic. Because Isaiah wrote in chapter 55 a very familiar passage. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, Paul had a strong conviction and a belief in the unity of the church. He believed that there was neither Jew nor Greek. He was dedicated to seeing Jews and Gentiles being saved. He was dedicated to this. He was willing to suffer for this. He was willing to die for this. This was the biblical principle that he was following, that he was dedicated to. Fourthly, we need to analyze our gifts. We need to analyze our motives and our desires. It's impossible to be doing the will of the Lord if you are in the wrong place or you are in the wrong position. A key, a key question you need to ask yourself is, where can I be most effective in furthering God's kingdom in the light of my gifts? For example, if you have the gift of teaching and mentoring young adults or children and you find yourselves on the missions team, are you able to fulfill the, war, the Lord's will for your life? As J.D. Greer put it in our Ephesian study, not all of us are called to be pastors or missionaries or preachers. However, we are all called to serve the Lord, we are called to serve the church, and we are called to serve one another. Also, you need to examine your heart. You need to examine the desires of your heart. Are you seeking God's glory or are you seeking your own glory? 
Is your heart open before the Lord with no secret sin? If you are delighting in the Lord, then you can trust Him to give you the desires of your heart. And this will be done either by confirming your current desires that you have or by changing those desires to be more in line with Him. And finally, we are to prayerfully evaluate the wise counsel of other godly believers. Now, I know this sounds strange, and it is very difficult to do, because in our text today, we saw Paul did not heed the warnings from his companions. There are commentators that do feel that Paul sinned by ignoring the Holy Spirit, that he made a mistake by going to Jerusalem, that he was being prideful, that he could have done more by planting more churches. But I personally feel that Paul was being resolute. He stuck to his convictions. I believe the companions were warning him about the suffering that he was about to endure because they loved him. The Spirit was preparing Paul for this. But, nevertheless, I believe you should seek counsel from those who have followed the Lord for many, many years, including your Christian parents. Now, this is really for the youth as well. If you haven't walked with God long, in, long enough to know Him well and take advantage of His wise or the wise counsel of those who know Him well, also, if you are a new believer, it is probably better to postpone any major life decisions uh, until you get to know the basic uh, grounding of God's will. So, it is clear that determining God's will for your life is no easy task. However, I'm totally convinced that if we walk closely with Him, if we submit to Him, and if we are obedient to Him, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will get closer to finding that out. May God give you the resolve to do this for Him as you diligently seek the will for your life. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this example that Paul set before us today, Father. We want to thank you that he remained resolute and he stood firm, Father. We want to thank you that he set an example that he was willing to die and suffer for the name of the name of Jesus, Lord. Now, Lord, admittedly, we're not all called to suffer and to die, but Father, we pray that you give us a heart to let us let go of our desires, Lord, to choose to follow you, to write a blank check for our lives, Father. So, Lord, as we go through this week, Lord, may your word continue to penetrate our hearts, Lord, so that we may be doers of your word. Father, may we be the light and the salt to this dark and sinful world. And we ask this in your Son's precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.